Uh, there are two, um, there are more than two, but there are at least two passages uh, of Scripture that are heavily focused on um, eschatology, on last things. Uh, one of them is um, the passage we looked at last week, the uh, so-called uh, Olivet uh, discourse in Matthew 24 uh, and 25, and then the parallels in Luke 21 and Mark 13, where Jesus seems to be answering two uh, distinct but related questions, one uh, relating to the destruction of Jerusalem and the other relating to events surrounding His second coming. And the two are distinct issues, but they are also related, as I suggested last week. It, it was, of course, uh, well-nigh um, impossible to cover all of that in 45 minutes, just as it is well-nigh impossible to cover tonight's topic in f 45 minutes, and that is Revelation chapter 20. So over the next... Ah, oh, thank you, David. I, I felt as though I was in South Africa or somewhere trying to communicate. There we go. Uh, but over the next few weeks, and there will be an interval... On May, May, we're not in May, we're in March. In March 17, when we have the, um, what do we have? The Erskine Seminary um, Lecture, the, the, um, the Gerardo Lecture on uh, two weeks from tonight. But that apart, and, and do make a note of that, and, and we have a wonderful, wonderful speaker coming on March the 17th, uh, a dear friend of mine. And, um, but over the next few weeks, really over the next month, uh, we're going to be more or less back and forth in Revelation 20, dealing with the issue of the millennium. Millennium, of course, from the Latin um, rendition of a thousand mille in Latin, uh, leading to the word millennium, the, th the 1,000 years. And in particular, I, I thought we might have sufficient um, interest and, and material to do a, a distinctive look at three of the major interpretations, the premillennial, postmillennial, and amillennial uh, interpretations. And my goal is, is not um, necessarily or intentionally to try and convince you of one or the other, uh, and I have not conducted a survey, but even among uh, the ministers of this church, there, there is probably a, a, a difference of opinion. Actually, I'm pretty sure there is a difference of opinion, uh, but one that's held in uh, the greatest of respect. And I, 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 try, I want to try and uh, teach this uh, over the next few weeks from, from that perspective. Obviously, I have an opinion uh, but and every now and then that opinion may assert itself, and I'll I'll try and be nice. And um, but uh, just as um, just as Matthew 24 ha uh, has some interpretive difficulties as to at what point do we transition from the fall of Jerusalem to um, the second coming, so also in Revelation 20 even. Uh, verse 5 of Revelation 20 is perhaps among one of the most difficult verses to 
to get right uh, in terms of uh, understanding it. Well, uh, let's uh, pray together. Father, we thank you uh, as we come now this evening to study together this uh, magnificent and extraordinary chapter, the 20th chapter of Revelation, with the glimpses of the new heavens and new earth that follow in the subsequent chapters. We, we pray for understanding and insight and help, but also submission and gratitude for the gospel and for the victory of Christ who has conquered death and the grave and in particular Satan, the great red dragon who appears in Revelation 12 and is imprisoned for a thousand years Um, here in Revelation 20. We want to remind ourselves of the perspective that we uh, worship one and are in union with one who is altogether victorious. And uh, enable us, we pray, as we study together to uh, remember that perspective uh, in day-to-day life as we struggle against the world and the flesh and the devil. And all of this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, at the end of the um, outline tonight, and the outline tonight is is perhaps more extensive than usual, and some of these charts will appear again as we... uh, I'll I'll reprint uh, them, but I thought it might be useful for you, something for you to read tonight if you're an insomniac. You can can go through uh, these various charts, and there are people... Uh, who love charts and think that if they have a chart, they actually understand it. Uh, so I, th- I, I thought I would let, let you go home tonight, at least with some, um, some uh, sense that, that, uh, that you understand what's going on here. Uh, and, uh, but let's read together, first of all, uh, Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image. And had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Uh, Then comes this difficult verse. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for 
a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, reference the book of Ezekiel, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they, were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death And Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Well, it's this chapter and uh, the reference in verse 2, that Satan being bound for a thousand years, uh, repeated several times. And then uh, in verse 7, Uh, and when the thousand years were ended, and what is the meaning of this one thousand years, the so-called millennium. And is this something that happens um, before Jesus returns or after Jesus returns? A pre-millennial view, uh, the pre referring to the second coming, uh, or at least to, to the coming of Jesus in some aspect or form, Um, a premillennial view would hold that Jesus will come before the millennium. The millennium will come after Jesus has come, whether that coming is in a one-stage or in dispensationalism in a two-stage uh, form, um, or uh, in a post-millennial view, uh, the, the millennium uh, occurs before Jesus comes. In other words, Jesus comes after, post the millennium. So that there'll be a millennium, uh, and then Jesus will come. Now, as we will see, both post-millennials and amillennials believe that the second coming is after the millennium. Where they differ is, is the extent of that millennium, whether it refers to the entirety of the inter-adventual age, from the time of Jesus' resurrection and ascension to the second coming, or whether it's something that occurs just right up against the second uh, coming. Well, in order to understand any of this, one needs at least some kind of understanding of the book of Revelation. Where does Revelation 20 occur within the book? Uh, and it's not sufficient to say after chapter 19 and before chapter 21. But in a sense, that is precisely what we mean. One has to understand at least something of the flow of the book Of Revelation. And just as there is some fairly extensive disagreement about 
the millennium in its, and what it means in relationship to the second coming. So also, you won't be surprised to learn that there is a great deal of um, variation as to the understanding of the structure of the book of Revelation. For my part, I, I, I have been convinced for 35 years or more, uh, b- basically because of uh, William Hendrickson's um, More Than Conquerors, uh, which was a, a fairly small and, and modest uh, book uh, interpreting the book of Revelation. I came into the book of Revelation via the door of Hendrickson's More Than Conquerors, and, and that sort of skewed my understanding, prejudiced it, shaped it, formed it for good or ill, then and since, and, and I'm putting all the cards now on the table, if I can use that metaphor at First Presbyterian Church, um, but that's where I am. Others of you have come from a very different background, and you came via Dallas and, and the Ryrie Study Bible and, and, and other fanciful areas into the book of Revelation, uh, in, in which you, you understood the structure and flow of the book very differently. For, for my part, uh, my understanding of the book of Revelation is that it consists of seven distinct sections, seven being very important as a perfect number, and John is certainly playing with numbers in the book of Revelation. He's writing not history in the strict sense of the term, but he's writing in apocalyptic language and using the language, the genre of apocalyptic. Just as when you read the Narnia Chronicles or you read Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings you understand that you're reading different kind, a different kind of literature. It's literature, but it's a different kind of literature. We, we might call it, just for the sake of it tonight, we might call that fantasy literature. Right? And some of you English buffs will come back and, and quarrel with me about that term. But just for now, just go with it for now, that it's, that it's, that it's fantasy literature. But you understand that Bilbo Baggins, and I have been to Bilbo Baggins' house. I've stood in front of his front door, right? I've actually touched the door of that Bilbo Baggins in Bag End in Hobbiton lived. I've actually been there, stood there. Um, but but I, I do know in my, in my saner moments, I know that Bilbo Baggins does not exist. Well, similarly, in the book of Revelation, John is using a very distinctive kind of language that uses colors and numbers like the number seven in a very distinctive way. So uh, if you look at the outline, I'm on page three, and um, I've, I've given you there a sort of modest summation of the book of Revelation uh, all the way from chapter 1 to chapters 22, in seven sections. Um, some of these sections are fairly apparent. The first section is chapters 1 to 3, that includes the introduction of chapter 1, plus the seven, 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 hello, seven letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And the seven churches form sort of a circle 
if you follow them in order, they form a sort of circle. So there's a pattern here. John sees the risen, glorified Christ walking then among the seven golden uh, lampstands, and, and, and Jesus dictates to John these letters to the seven churches. We understand these churches are churches that existed at the time John wrote the book of Revelation. They were actual churches. But we also understand that these letters, and if, if you've ever heard a series of sermons, as many of you have, from uh, Dr. Ferguson uh, on the seven letters to the churches, they're also ch- letters, in a sense, that are written to us. They're, they're not just somebody else's letters, and you're reading somebody else's letters, which your mother told you never to do. You're actually reading letters that are sort of addressed generically to seven churches, to churches like First Presbyterian Church in Columbia down through the age. So there's a sense in which, yes, there's a specific context at the beginning of, in John's life, but they're also applicable right up to the second coming. Then in chapters 4 through 7, John is uh, caught up uh, into heaven. The focus in chapters 1 to 3 is very much on the earth. There are churches. These are are what we might call representations of the church um, militant, uh, the church on earth rather than the church in heaven. But in chapters 4 through 7, we are looking, as it were, at the church triumphant. Uh, We are looking at um, the throne and the extraordinary visions of uh, chapters 4 and 5. Perhaps chapters 4 and 5 are among the most glorious um, artistic impressions of the cosmos and how it functions anywhere. You have a picture of a throne, and in, in the midst of a throne is a lamb with its throat cut, who's holding the whole universe in the palms of his hands. It's a picture of the ruling and reigning of Jesus, the Jesus who was slain at uh, Calvary, the victorious lamb who has power to open the seals of the scroll understood as the scroll of history the unfolding of history from the time of John all the way up to the second coming and beyond, who has power over history to unlock the scroll of history, to break open those, those seals? And it is um, the Lamb. And then, uh, and, and we won't look at it now, but uh, at the end of, in, in 6, 15, 17, uh, there's a reference to the final judgment, and in chapter 7, uh, 15 and through 17, a description of the final blessedness. In other words, you've gone again from the time of John all the way through to the second coming and the consequences that follow. Now, press repeat. You know, if you watch Netflix, you can repeat the last 10 seconds. Isn't that right? I am not. This is. I shouldn't have. I shouldn't use illustration. I know nothing about. It. But pr- pr- go back to tape recorders. Press repeat. Right, and you can you can you can play the whole message again. Now in chapters eight through eleven, with the um, seven trumpets. They are trumpets of judgment. The church is avenged, protected, 
victorious. The section ends with a reference to the final judgment in 1118. Press repeat again, chapters 12 through 14. Chapter 12, of course, the the extraordinary graphic vision of the woman uh, giving birth to a child, and there's a great red dragon The serpent, the the crawling, slithering serpent of Genesis 3 has now grown to be Smaug and then some, the great red dragon threatening to devour the child as soon as it is born. Well, just think of of, uh, the pogrom, Herod's pogrom on Bethlehem and the flight uh, to Egypt that immediately came uh, upon uh, the birth, well, there may, there may have been a couple of years between the birth and the actual pogrom in, in Bethlehem, but, but that's the picture that's being depicted, the, the enemy, right? So this is Genesis 3 now, and then some in Revelation uh, chapter 12. Uh, and the rest uh, describes a continued opposition of the dragon uh, on the church, and then a final judgment scene in chapter Uh, 14, uh, verses 14 through 15. Now, press repeat again. This time you have seven bowls. You had seven trumpets, now seven bowls or or cauldrons, if you like, um, of of judgment, the final judgment seen in chapter 16, 19 through 20. Press repeat again, chapter 17 through 19. And you have um, successive depictions of the fall of Babylon, the beast of the earth, and the beast of the sea. Without going into the interpretation of that, which would require us to go back to chapter 13, where the beast of, of, uh, the, beast of the earth and the beast of the sea, or the false prophet, are, are initially introduced. They fall in the opposite order to the way that they were originally introduced in chapter 13. But again, what's being depicted, whether that depiction... You know, the interpretation here is that, that the, the, the collapse of Babylon and the beast of the earth and the beast of the sea brings us all the way to the final judgment and the ultimate victory of the Lamb. Now, uh, and then chapters 20 through 22, and we're looking at chapter 20 here, the millennium passage, is the seventh and final repetition of the same events, more or less, that culminate in the final judgment, covering the entire span of history from the time of Jesus' resurrection ascension to his second coming. Now, if that's true, right, and, and, and if you don't buy that interpretation, of course, then, then we have to start all over again. But, but if, if that interpretation is true, that tells you something about the interpretation of chapter 20 of Revelation. It belongs to a, a progressive, repetitive cycle explaining all of history from the time of Jesus to the second coming. So Revelation, Revelation 20 is going to be inclusive of events that are apparent in John's life and will end, will culminate in the second coming, judgment, and the blessedness that follow, which is chapters 21 and 22. So that view uh, is known as progressive 
parallelism. Right? And you either, you, either, you either buy that as an interpretation, and, and that may appear as though that's a grid, a forced grid sort of imposed, like a cookie cutter imposed on the book of Revelation. But it does seem to make sense to me. John seems to have a fixation about the number seven. It would make sense that, that there are seven progressive parallel uh, episodes in the book of Revelation. I Yes, I, I drew, uh, and, and this was done in a couple of minutes today, but I drew this, this if that makes sense. It's progressively parallel. Uh, I'm talking about the little diagram on the top of page four. And my attempt was to say, and maybe, maybe, uh, maybe this needs to be tweaked a little, but my, my sense is that, that with each progressive parallelism, there's more and more emphasis on the events of the end rather than the events of the beginning. That's sort of true, except for the last one. And, and, and I didn't have time to go back and, and redo this diagram. But uh, just give you some kind of impression as to what it is that I, I mean by that. Now, there are four, at least four, major interpretations of the book of Revelation. And, of course, they're given fairly fanciful names. The first, and we, we, we call this the futurist view of the book of Revelation, and it regards, now apart from the first three chapters, letters to the seven churches, that's obviously churches that existed in John's time, so, so, so that was definitely not future, that was, that was now as far as John was concerned. But from chapter four to the end of the book, refers to events that lie altogether in the future. Events that will occur immediately prior to Christ's second coming and the end of history and following the second coming, more or less. And many, though not all, futurists are premillennialists and dispensationalists. That's a very generalized, that's, 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 that's a generalization. But, but, but I'm just trying to put things into categories here. And there are strengths and, and weaknesses, which you can look at later. Um, a second view, right? So one view says most of the book of Revelation, from chapter 4 to, to chapter 22, is about the future. Events that haven't happened yet at the time of uh, Jesus' second coming. And, and uh, a second view is the opposite, and it's called preterism. Now, h- here we need a little nuance, because there are semi or semi-preterists. Uh, uh, um, R.C. Sproul, for example, would be a semi-preterist. Um, but then there are full-blown preter- preterists, and full br- full-blown preterists say that it's the opposite of futurism, uh, that Revelation is, the book of Revelation is primarily or perhaps even mostly or perhaps even altogether about events that culminate in AD 70. So, so the whole book of Revelation is about events that take place in the destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple that, that culminates in AD 70. The problem with that view is that if the book of Revelation is written in the 90s, 
which is what I believe, and under the reign of Emperor Domitian, it's kind of duh to write a book about events as prophecy about the future when it happened 20, 30 years ago. Right? So, if much of, much of, the, much of the argument about whether you're a full-blown preterist or not often depends on how, how you understand the argument about when was the book of Revelation written. Uh, I've been convinced and remain convinced that the book of Revelation was written in the early 90s at the end of John's uh, life uh, under the reign of Emperor Domitian. That seems still to me to be the, 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 the best argument. Colleagues of mine, esteemed colleagues of mine in this room, uh, like, like David Lawton, may hold to an entirely different view and, and may believe that it was written under the rule of Emperor Nero or, or somewhere in the 60s. And, and if, you are, if you are a post-millennialist, for example, you want the end to be pretty good, very good, so you have to get rid of all the bad stuff, and there's a lot of bad stuff in the book of Revelation. And the best way to do that is to dump it back into the late 60s, 70, all the bad stuff has happened. But in order to do that, you've got to, you've got to be able to say that the book of Revelation was written in the early 60s, because it's prophecy. It's about the future. It's about things that haven't happened yet when John is writing. So, so that, that, that kind of muddies the water a little. When was the book of Revelation actually written? So there's future, past, AD 70, uh, preterism. Then the third view, uh, known as the historicist view, sees the book of Revelation as, as, visionary, uh, as a visionary symbolization of the sequence of events that will occur throughout the course of history, unfolding not in progressive parallelism, right? But chapter 2, chapter 5, and 6, and 7, and 8 describe successive events in history, uh, events that can perhaps be located in history, S- specific events, like, for example, um, the harlot, uh, the, the Babylonian harlot in Revelation 17 as being the Roman Catholic Church and the papacy, a, a, a view held strongly in the 17th century, um, or that the beast of the sea, a lesser known view, uh, that the beast from the sea in Revelation 13 uh, with the rise of um, Islam in the 8th, 9th um, century and so on. So the historicist view sees the book of Revelation as, as the unfolding of history, n- not in successive parallelism from beginning to end, beginning to end, but, but trying to pinpoint specific things that have happened in history with specific chapters in the book of Revelation, the historicist view. And then the fourth view, um, known as the idealist view, uh, sometimes called iterism, which, which that's just a great word. Now, whatever you are, right, you just want to say in a conversation, I'm an iterist, because it's just a, it's just a conversation starter. But sometimes called iterism, uh, this approach views the visions of Revelation as a portrayal of the church's struggle throughout the entire period between the first and second comings of Christ, but not 
not wanting in any way to be specific about any particular prophecy, you know, that's Rome, that's Islam, that's Genghis Khan, that's Hitler, that's Mussolini, that's, name your worst president, and we move on. Um, Right, so whereas futurists, preterists, and historicists identify the harlot Babylon in Revelation 17 with with an end-time first-century or historical figure, respectively, idealists argue that Babylon symbolizes a variety of political and religious forms of opposition to the church and the gospel that recur throughout history. Now, I, I think that's where I am in terms of my understanding of the book of Revelation, an idealist. And, and we have to be careful not to use the word idealist in the sense of that's the best interpretation. I don't mean ideal, but idealist in the sense, in this very specific sense here, that, that what is being depicted in very specific graphic terms, almost like, like cartoon terms in the book of Revelation, is not referring to any one particular event, but to events that occur again and again. Because there is a likeness to these events. There is a likeness to the beast of the sea and the beast of the earth that repeat themselves in various periods um, of history. Well, that um, calls on us now to, uh, in 10 minutes, to uh, interpret the book of uh, Revelation uh, 1 through 20. Uh, uh, Revelation 20, 1 through, um, 1 through 15. And, and let, me, let, me, um, let me begin here. Let's look at verses 1 to 3. I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Now, some people say that can't possibly refer to now. It can't possibly refer to the time of John, and it can't refer to 2016 because the, the nations are deceived. How can that possibly describe now? In other words, there is a, there's almost a predetermination here that if that doesn't describe now, it must describe something towards the end. So what's being described here is something that happens at the time before Jesus comes, or maybe after Jesus comes. Um, premillennialism will tend to do that, as we will see when we look at that in more detail later. Let me, let me draw another scenario. What is the difference between the New Testament era, our era, and the Old Testament era? Well, if you're living in, in the Old Testament era, if you're living under the terms of the Old Covenant, the only place where you were likely to even remotely hear about that covenant, that gospel, would be if you lived within the precincts of Israel. Palestine. If you lived in remotest Africa, you, if you lived in Gaul, if you lived in Wales, not that it was called Wales, but if you lived in, in Roman Britain during the time of the Old Testament, there is almost no likelihood whatsoever that you would ever hear about 
the gospel, about the covenant, about Yahweh. You, you wouldn't hear about him. In other words, the nations, the nations were deceived. The nations were deceived. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, and bound him for a thousand years, threw him into the pit, shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. What happens after Pentecost? The gospel moves out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the world. And by the end of the book of Acts, the world, at least the world as, as, as they then knew it, had heard the gospel in general terms. Right? It, it looks as though what had been deceived has now been undeceived. It looks as though the power of Satan to deceive the nations has been severely curtailed. Now, that's, that's, an, that's an interpretation of verses 1 to 3 of Revelation 20. It's describing what has happened as a consequence of the death, resurrection, ascension, sending of the Holy Spirit. Satan has been thrown into a prison. Not his final prison, because he's going to be let out again. However dark you may think this world is, right? and, and there are some of us who might think that the world is very, very dark. It's not as dark as it was under the old covenant, where the light only shone in a very small little zip code in the world. But that's, that's an interpretation. Well, verses 4, um, I've got to keep an eye on the clock here. Uh, verses 4 through 6. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Now, where are these thrones? Now, I don't have time to prove this to you. There are over 40 references to thrones, thrones in the scriptures in the New Testament, and all of them except for three refer to thrones in heaven. And, and that lends itself to saying in verse 4, when I saw thrones, he's not talking about thrones on earth, he's not talking about a throne in, in, in Rome and in, and in London and, and in, in, in New York or Washington or whatever. He's talking about thrones in heaven. I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls, not, not the bodies, the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. One of the reasons why the book of Revelation was written was to answer the question in Revelation chapter 6, when John sees the souls of those who have been beheaded, and they're crying out for vengeance. They're crying out, how long? Let me simplify that. One of the reasons I think the book of Revelation was written was in order to answer the pastoral question, where are those who have died as martyrs for the gospel? Many thousands of them. It was a very real pastoral issue in the first century when John is writing, and perhaps under Emperor Domitian especially. 
and uh, would equally apply in the 60s if the book of Revelation was written under Emperor Nero and so on. So, so you've got, you've got uh, an audience here to whom John is writing who have lost spouses, they've lost children, they've lost parents, they've lost friends, and they've been beheaded for, as a testimony to the gospel. They've been beheaded for Christ. Where are they? And John says, I saw them. I saw their souls, and they're sitting on thrones. Now, if that interpretation is true, what what John is saying is, in the first three verses, he's looking down on earth. In in verses 4 to 6, he's looking up in heaven. At the same time as Satan is bound on earth, in heaven, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded and and their ruling and reigning. Now, now pastorally, pastorally, that has that has an immense amount to say. Uh, imagine if you were um, the, a spouse who, had, who, who you've lost your spouse uh, martyred under one of the Roman persecutions, and John is saying, "I saw them. I saw their souls." So the events that are being spoken of in verses 4 through 6 refer to, to John's time now, as John is writing. The problem is verse 5. Um, you know, they, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The same thousand years as in verses 1 to 3. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. And the question is, what does the rest of the dead mean? You know, one interpretation of verse 5 is, verse 4 is referring to their souls, and he sees the souls of those who have died, and they're ruling and reigning with Christ, but their bodies haven't yet been resurrected. Verse 5 could mean the rest of the dead, their physical bodies, did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. That's that's a possible interpretation of verse 5. That would would still be in accord uh, with um, a a view that says verses 4 through 6 is referring to uh, the same period of time, the thousand years, the millennium, the interadventual age from the time of Christ's uh, first resurrection to the time of his second resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. They're already in heaven. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Over such the second death, right? there's, a, there's, a, there's a dying of the body, and then there's the second death, which is the judgment, and and. and cast into the lake of fire that you'll talk about at the end of uh, Revelation 20. Uh, over, over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And then describes in verses 7 and, and to the, through to the rest of the chapter um, the defeat. Satan is released out of prison. There's a battle, uh, the battle of Armageddon. However, we interpret that, and we'll talk about that uh, in the coming weeks using Ezekiel language, Gog and uh, Magog and so on, and, and Jesus wins. So let's pray together. Father, 
Uh, we've just begun and scratched the surface of this magnificent uh, chapter, and uh, we pray now for your blessing as we transition our thoughts to uh, Haiti. We thank you that we, ru- that we worship a, a, a Savior who rules and reigns and who will be victorious over all false prophets and beasts of the sea and earth and over Satan himself. And uh, we pray, Lord, uh, come, Lord Jesus, and come quickly. We ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen.